We're here with Hysterocology. This is Andrea Hansen and Elizabeth Beckman. We have a guest today, Sarah McConvey as well. We're really excited about this guest. Sarah and I had a really interesting conversation a couple of weeks mm-hmm. ago, and we've been wanting her on the podcast ever since. We're so glad the stars aligned. Sarah, do you want to introduce yourself? Sure. Yeah. I'm Sarah McCombie. I use she, they, and he pronouns. I've been an occupational therapist for 12 years. I'm currently in ACMHC um, doing psychotherapy. I recently, me and two business partners recently opened the Neurodiversity Clinic where we do LGBTQ and neurodiverse occupational therapy, mental health therapy, and a doctor. We have a doctor on board. And yeah, that's my take. What That's what takes up my daily life. <laughs> nice. That's exciting. What inspired yeah. you to start the clinic? Yeah. So I had been working at the Utah Pride Center before opening the clinic. And so, yeah, really focusing in on um, LGBTQ mental health therapy. And a lot of my clients also had some type of neurodiversity. And I kept hearing the same thing of you know, I can go to my doctor and get the medications and we can do mental health therapy, but I'm really needing skills training. And so I was really in my mental health, you know, therapy zone. And, but I thought, oh, that's occupational therapy. And and I had a friend, my friend, Angela, who really focuses on the occupational side at our clinic, who I've been friends with her for six years and we've always dreamed about starting a business. And then I met our third business partner, Calais, who worked in concussion for eight years. And so, yeah, we all got together and we're like, we should start a business. It would be so amazing to, you know, open something based on our val- our shared values, which our core value is connection. And yeah, we just went for it. And well, that's exciting working. <laughs> for anybody out there who's looking to start their own clinic or like you noticed there's just an, a niche that's not being met or a, or a population that's not being served. Would you recommend they put the effort into trying to create their own clinic or has it been super challenging along the way? It's been challenging. I highly recommend it and recommend really getting a feel for what it's going to be like first because like knowing about the challenges, I think... Mm, I think probably would have been helpful, like knowing about some of the challenges. Like I think it really feels like starting a garden or like having a kid in the way that it's like, I've had a lot of moments where I'm like, I don't have a boss. <laughs> that <laughs> yeah. is so weird. And I, you know, there's some moments where that's so exciting. Like, oh my gosh, I get to create my own thing. I get to follow my values. It's, and it is, it's so growth promoting. And then there's other times that I'm like, I just want someone to tell me what to do. What do I do here? Um, you know, the journey to figure that out. It's challenging. Challenging. I, I love it for the growth promoting aspect of it. So highly suggest and also like, yeah, totally do your research on all the challenges because it's, it is tricky. <laughs> it can be hard. <laughs> and there is so much information out there too about how to run a business successfully. Mm. And it's hard to get, you know, you get distracted and pulled in so many different directions. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. I love your approach. I love that. So Sarah and I originally connected at an LGBT networking meeting for Mm -hmm. business owners. And we were drawn to each other because we both work more with somatics than with Mm. talk therapy. And I love the angle of an occupational therapist in the Mm. clinic. I've been looking for that for years to Mm. be able to refer people to. So it's very exciting when you work with a lot of trauma, which I work with a lot of trauma, sensory issues and Mm. 
working with your your space, where you are in space and time, all of that stuff gets really disrupted in mm. trauma. And body movement work and occupational therapy work is huge when it comes to healing mm-hmm. in a way that that as therapists, we can't we can't really take all the time that we need in the therapy session to be working through all of the occupational mm. therapy. And we mm-hmm. don't have all of the training or the equipment either. Mm. So such a cool concept. Mm. I love it. So what is it like to be in doing that type of work? It's different for the landscape mm. of Utah. Utah is really a lot more of the talk therapy-based treatment. Mm, that's a really good point. Yeah. When I went back to school to get my degree to do mental health therapy, I went to the California Institute of Integral Studies, which really focuses on a mix of somatics and spiritual psychology. And I love that. And even actually my own therapy, I started my own therapy in about, I think it was 2013 and it was with a somatic therapist. And I had, I had gone to a few sessions for like five different therapists before that. And it wasn't until I got a somatic therapist that was like, whoa, this is amazing. I have a body and like, I'm actually learning how to move emotions through my body and get in touch with my body. And so when I went to school, I was like, this is what I got to do. This is so powerful. Yeah. So I spent three years in school with a cohort of 40 other students studying somatics. And I did find it challenging graduating, being in Utah and connecting with other therapists that had a completely different orientation. Most therapists are focused on more of a cognitive, you know, the cognitive behavioral therapy or ACT and, or just more of the, yeah, like talk logic based therapy. And I think for certain things, it's like, awesome. You know, sometimes it is, I I do that for myself even like, okay, where am I having cognitive distortions here? And you know, where am I catastrophizing? And it can be super powerful. And I think it, especially with trauma, like you were saying, it's so, it's very, very limited without actually, you know, feeling, going into your body. And, you know, it's interesting too. I I noticed too, sometimes talking about the body can be, can feel like, yeah, I'm doing body work, but it's like, you know, still intellectualizing. Mm -hmm. Yeah the body talking about the right, body instead sitting, of actually still talking about the body <laughs> yeah. as if it's not something that we are actually living in. Yeah, <laughs> so, yeah. so a question before we go any farther, just in case there are any people or any therapists listening who are not super clear about somatics mm. from each of your perspectives, since it's a very kind of integral part of what each of you do, maybe explain a little bit about that. Because I think part of what can be challenging, like you brought up, Andre, in one of our previous podcasts, is there are so many modalities. And depending on where you go to school, even what state, what professionals you train under or are supervised under, you may be going, somatics? Like, what does that mean? Mm -hmm. I've heard that maybe. So if you can explain, so we have a clear understanding. Hmm. Yeah. So to me, I would say somatics is bringing awareness, connecting our consciousness, connecting our awareness, even connecting our thinking. You can think of it like that to the consciousness of the body in a way that you're, you're in relationship with every part of your body. So it feels, it can feel challenging to explain, I think, because putting it into words, it's because it's such a physical experience, you know? So a lot of what I do when I'm doing somatic work is like, okay, bring your attention inward. You know, what are the body sensations that you're feeling? What are the body sensations? And like, let's listen to that body sensation. When you just sit with it and listen to this tingle in your arm, you know, what comes up? Kind of surrendering to that, surrendering the thoughts to allow 
more information to come from that specific body sensation. You know, that's one example of something I'll do in therapy. So it's really, to me, it's a lot about relationship, our relationship with our awareness, our brain, connecting the brain, the awareness, the consciousness to the body itself, and that the body itself has information for us and listening in that relationship. Yeah, definitely living in our bodies Mm. instead of in front of our bodies or behind our bodies or Mm. pressured in specific areas of our bodies with different regions cut off, which is something that that is really common that we we dissociate from mm. ourselves really easily. And I have I have a meditation that I do with my clients on the very first session usually, and I'm about to put it up on YouTube. It'll be on YouTube by the time mm. this comes out. It really helps to show what it feels like in your body in those different mental states. So for me, somatics, very similar to what Sarah is saying, is about developing interception, the ability to feel what our body is feeling, acknowledge what our body is feeling, and live in balance between emotions, our body sensations, listen to those cues. Our our body is the ultimate witness to all things. Our mind can dissociate. Our mind can over-intellectualize. Our mind can be asleep. Our mind can be intoxicated in one way or another. But our body is always present, always experiencing everything that we ever, ever experience. Mm. So there is a tendency to say, my body's not safe, or I feel icky in my body, or whatever it is, we, we disconnect from it. And there's actually... I'm going to have to double check this, but I believe it's the anterior cingulate cortex within the salience network that helps with interception and helps us to be able to connect to our body. And so often in trauma, that region gets disrupted to the point Mm. where it's either spending too much time in the executive functioning regions, and that's where we have our over-intellectualizers, our our high achievers, um, but that also are neglecting themselves and their bodies, or we get... um, we get too much of a body sensation and we try to cut it off. There's so much that can go wrong there with body sensation. So building up that region of the brain, rebalancing that region of the brain, helping us live in congruence with our body is absolutely vital in my mind to creating wholeness and wellness. And what I found even is with most of my clients, I even focus on what I call the four pillars of health, their sleep, their diet their water consumption, and then exercise. Because for me, that tends to be something that we, even as therapists, we dissociate mm. or almost uh, we we separate that out and we don't talk about how they're caring for their body or even maybe think about how we're caring about our body. And so uh, I feel like obviously somatics is this idea of integrating that connection with body in session. I know for me a lot, it comes down to self-care and beyond even self-care, just physical maintenance of this vehicle where people are going, I feel shitty, I'm tired, I'm depressed. And for me, it's like, okay, well, first off, have you been sleeping? Well, no. How are you eating? Oh, I'm not really eating. Um, what about your water? I don't think I'm drinking enough water. Are, are you moving your body? I'm not really. Okay. And so as part of that, for me, trying to get people to realize if I neglect those things, I might, I might just by default set myself up to either further want to dissociate mm-hmm. or not being able to uh, make meaningful gains in therapy because we're intellectualizing everything and mm-hmm. all these behaviors, but we're not talking about the basics. I'm wondering, Sarah, for you, how has focusing on somatics, how does that impact your client's experience of therapy? Where do you think that makes the the therapy experience very unique from where 
they might work with someone else who is not focusing on their body. Mm -hmm. One thing related to your question that I was thinking as you were talking is I noticed as a therapist, a lot of times, if I'm not taking care of myself, that I am not, so just like you said, yeah, if I'm not taking care of myself and I'm not taking care of my body, I can't actually drop into my body and embody, you know, embody myself and as, as well. So if I'm a little bit dissociated, I noticed I don't have the capacity to hold my clients as deeply either. And so I think because I work in a somatic way, what I notice is that when I'm really embodied, because most of the time, not all the time, I'm, you know, trying to have a regular practice of taking care of myself and embodiment practices, self-love practices that I'm really, when I'm really in that, I can bring clients so much deeper because it's like, I'm, I'm feeling my own heart. And so I can feel their heart better. Mm. Like I'm feeling my own fear in my stomach that's there and holding that. And so if I can hold my own fear, then I'll have the capacity to hold and feel and sense theirs too. But if I'm dissociated from my stomach, if I'm dissociated from my heart, I actually won't, I'll be dissociated from sensing and empathizing with their stomach and heart too. And so I think because I'm conscious of that and intentional with that, I'm constantly thinking of my own body and how I can be present in a way that's deeply holding. And I think what happens, what I see is that people can sense, like people can sense when there's a deeply safe holding space. And I think certain levels of trauma or vulnerability require that deeply holding space in order to feel safe enough to actually be seen, you know, because- And to go there themselves, right? If we as the therapist are- I think enabling in some ways that disconnect by Mm. intellectualizing with Mm. them and not dropping into that space ourselves Mm. and not allowing them and encouraging them to drop into that space as well, then we're part of the dissociation problem in my mind. Mm. And exactly like what you were saying is similar to what I experience where when I'm able to open myself up and drop into myself completely, we know uh, from from some research that the therapist's brain, when they're really cued into the client, does start to do some neural, some neural mirroring, right, mm-hmm. to where we're very in tune with our clients. And it happens with couples and with parents and children and stuff like that too. And so often when I'm asking clients, because I, I cue several times – several, several times throughout the session. What does this feel like in your body? Where are you feeling in this, this in your body? You know, what, what is the texture of it? You know, all mm. of these cues as to how exactly this is in their body, making it as tangible as possible. And many times before they give me their answer, I'll have a good guess as to what they're about to say, because mm. there's that, that depth of connection between the two. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's so different. I think sometimes for clients, it can be confusing at first of what are we doing. But then typically by the end of the first session, they're like, oh my gosh, this is life-changing. I can tell that this is what's actually going to get. Is going to hit that spot that the cognitive stuff wasn't able to hit. Mm-hmm. And the cognitive mm-hmm. stuff has its place. It's a foundational, mm-hmm. right? And then beyond that, the somatics are incredible. Mm. You guys both speaking was making me think of Virginia Satir with experiential therapy. And she has people basically use their bodies to represent how is your relationship or how do you, how do you feel your relationship is symbolically or how do you feel your family is? She talks about that we can't just shut off certain parts of our emotion, but even physiologically, as, you, as you're both speaking, I'm thinking about when I feel at my best with my clients, 
And if I'm cut off emotionally or if I'm cut off from my body or I'm trying not to fully connect, it absolutely puts blinders on for what I'm capable of picking up on for my clients. Because if we're putting those on for ourselves and we think that's not going to then transfer over to what we're seeing and picking up on. And sometimes I've sat and realized when I've had those blinders on and been intellectualizing things too much and I'm recognizing things and even just noticing certain observations about my clients' bodies or their posture or they look uncomfortable, but they're sitting uncomfortably. And I'm going, are you comfortable? Do you need to reposition? And they're like, yeah, I'm really uncomfortable. But I notice if I'm not paying attention mm. to my body and I'm sitting uncomfortably and dissociating, I'm not going to be picking up on that for them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And what a major part of healing I think they would miss out on right. if, we don't, if, we, if don't. we don't focus on that. And mm-hmm. it, it blocks us, I think, us not being able to go there with ourselves. I think it also blocks us from being able to go to places that might seem a little bit weird with clients Mm -hmm. too. If we allow ourselves to be in that discomfort, whatever it is, so much space opens up, so much opportunity opens up. I like to blend somatic movement with Mm -hmm. EMDR. So, you know, you do the bilateral simulation and then you go into, you know, what what they noticed and the, the parts and the integration and the emotion and then the body sensation. And then oftentimes I'll say, okay, put your body in the position associated with this feeling. So they'll Mm -hmm. do that. And then as we move through it, their body also begins to move and the whole posture and the whole experience comes together to be so much more impactful than mm-hmm. even just EMDR on its own. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think incorporating somatics into everything I think is really incredible. And I think that we as therapists have to be able to be un- be uncomfortable and hold space for things that are weird, right? Mm-hmm. Like it's not normal for a client to go to a therapist and like, curl up on their couch underneath a blanket, like holding themselves, right? And it should be. Mm-hmm. It's so good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think too, our bodies are a lot better than our minds at being in uncertainty and holding uncertainty. Like the mind is like, let's bring this out. I want to problem solve. And actually when you need problem solving, it's like, awesome, let's do that. But then the body, like I think a lot of times, and even speaking for myself, it's like when I'm um, scared because I'm like, okay, what's happening next in my life? If there's like a big thing going on and, you know, then I get into problem solving and, oh, I got to do this, got to do that. And then it's like, it's really allowing myself to just say, oh, I'm in uncertainty. And then I can come back to my body and just my body can be like, yeah, you're in uncertainty right now. And it's scary. And we can hold this. You don't have to like go figure it out. <laughs> well, and our brains can, they can travel forward in time. They can travel backward in time. Mm-hmm. They can try to perceive of all things like all at once and overwhelm us, but our body can only do one thing at a time. <laughs> and as you were talking about that, I can so relate where there's this idea of if I just think and I find the right solution and then I can just apply the right behavior when sometimes like if I'm upset, I might need to just do primal scream therapy. (laughs) My body needs to scream. (laughs) My body was trying to give itself what it needed. (laughs) And there's such a beauty in helping people to tap into that and knowing myself as somebody who I think we're naturally, I have a sense of most of us are naturally born with that sense of trusting our body and Mm -hmm. loving our body and using it. And even the way the school systems are built, 
the way society tells us your mm-hmm. bodily needs aren't important. Mm-hmm. Develop your ability to dissociate from the discomfort. We've talked about mm-hmm. this. Yeah, your body um, is something to be controlled, right? Yeah. It's a thing mm-hmm. to control. Where if you need to go to the bathroom, I loved this. You said this once to me during a personal conversation, Andrea, about, you know, if um, like this idea of who decided that this need to listen to a teacher in the moment is more important than you need to go to the bathroom mm. if you really need to go mm. or listen to a bodily function. But in school, we're conditioned to dissociate and even maybe religiously or culturally, mm-hmm. that can happen as well to just shut it off. Mm-hmm. And I know for myself, it's not been positive to do that. For you, Andrea, I'm wondering with your trauma work, how fundamental has somatic work been to really helping people heal? Like you said, Besides just, instead of just talking to them in a chair, letting them move and use their body. How has that transformed your work? It's been incredibly fundamental uh, for my work and then also for my personal experience. Like Sarah was saying at the beginning, I had been to talk therapists and there was always this limit of, well, you're functioning fine. Like, what's the problem then? Mm. (laughs) And it's like, well, that's true on paper. I'm a functional, successful person. And yet I feel like I'm constantly in some kind of battle with myself, something deeper down that feels like it's going to claw out and take me over at any moment. And I have to spend so much energy maintaining it. And every now and then it does claw out and something happens, right? I'm I don't I'm not okay for a few days. That always felt limiting to me. And then even therapists that I saw who said that they were trauma specialists or said that they were complex trauma specialists and that they did these other techniques and I've heard about this from from clients as well and then my spouse as well who they they go to these therapists who say they specialize in these techniques and they don't use them. And it turns into still just talking and talking and talking. And that's fine. And and if you need, you know, support, if somebody just needs support from week to week, it's fine. Uh, but for me, what I was wanting, it felt like the mental health field just didn't have. So when I heard for the first time the the neuroscience behind trauma and what happens in the brain, and then heard about, I think the very first somatic-based training that I did was TCTSY. It's a interceptive yoga. Really incredible. So it, it was just this huge just downpouring of relief, but also anger of, okay, why am I, you know, two or three years out of graduate school at this point? And nobody's ever taught me this. Nobody's ever gone over the neuroscience. They've never told me that there there is a way that we can go deeper. So that was a moment that really changed my practice. And I had learned EMDR a few years prior to that, but it was really learning the the somatic thing going down that road and implementing it in my practice. The depth that we were able to go to, the results that we were able to get all just immediately improved. Your schooling had more of that, Sarah, right? From Mm -hmm. the beginning. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So how was that just actually right out the gate? having that be a part of your training. Because I had a similar experience with Andrea, even though we did different licensures, different programs, the body was talked about, but not in a meaningful way or even exploring interventionally what was possible there. Mm-hmm. But so your your education mm-hmm. was different though, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I had researched um, different places, yeah, and went there specifically because of that. And it, yeah, it was very different. I mean, my cohort and I still get together, like the relationships were so deep because One big value of where I went is everyone has to be getting therapy while they're there, you know, really basing off of like, can only bring people as deeply as you have gone yourself. 
I forget who said that quote, but <laughs> yeah, like yeah. this principle of like, we got to be doing our own work. Like what we've said already of, you know, if I'm dissociating, if I'm, there's something I'm in my body, I'm not facing, it's going to affect my clients in a certain way. So yeah, so pretty much every class we would would start off with a meditation, like a bell for the meditation and and end with a meditation and a bell. And we did a lot of exploring of parts work, look at that different parts of your body, different parts of your brain have their own consciousness and can have arguing, you know, can argue with different parts of the body. And I know there's a lot of different modality, like gestalt and uh, internal family systems that work with um, that kind of principle. But I think one of my favorite parts of it was the experiential aspect of the education that um, there were some lectures, but a lot of it was just experiential. Like let's experience this meditation, experience this technique to work on projections, experience this. And so we would practice therapy with each other in all of, in all of these different types of somatic modalities. And I think I think it's also a humble, it was a humbling experience too, to really see myself as in all of my classmates too. Like, you know, we're all going through this like really deep experience. It, the whole schooling was like a deep therapeutic experience in and of itself. And so to really like kind of humble myself to feel like I'm another human on this journey, just like anyone else, just like any of my clients I'm ever going to have, I'm on my journey and I am growing my skills to hold and to guide people through. And, you know, those are the gifts that I have to bring. And I don't need to, yeah, I think be doing the embodied experiences of learning how to do therapeutic practices taught me that I can just be myself and I don't need to be this persona of a therapist mm -hmm. in order to do the work. I think that's the my favorite thing I learned about in, in that kind of schooling. Yeah. It's so huge and so vital. And Elizabeth and I just barely released a podcast about suicide rates among mm. therapists oh. and the, the rate of attempts and suicidal thoughts is higher among therapists. And part oh. of it, it does seem like it comes from that disconnect of mm. we have to somehow be above being mm. human. That's mm. incredible that that school did that. And so Sarah went to school in California Elizabeth and I went to school in Utah, and just before we started recording, Elizabeth brought up a really interesting idea as to where this culture in Utah comes from of being more talk therapy-based, mm. not connecting to the body, and therapists learning more of the cognitive therapy as well. And, and there's somewhat of a culture in Utah where anything that's not talk therapy-based seems like it's woo-woo nonsense, mm. and that's obviously completely inaccurate. But mm -hmm. that is, as a therapist who doesn't do much talk therapy at all, when I talk to other therapists about what I do, there's this feeling that I'm doing some kind of like energy healing or something like that, which is like also can be legit, right? But typically isn't within the licensed therapy realm. Mm -hmm. Whereas these modalities that we're talking about are modalities that you do learn as a licensed professional. The, the trainings that I've been to are only available to licensed professionals. They're not available to the general public. And yet there's this, this culture in Utah. So Elizabeth, will you talk more about that? Yeah. So as we were talking about what we could talk about today, uh, what had come to mind for me is why would that be the case? What would impact us in Utah or the therapeutic culture in Utah being a bit more cognitive behavioral. And 
I do think there has to be something to a certain culture of, first of all, potentially demonizing the body. The mm. body is this carnal part of us that we must suppress, which means potentially disconnect from, uh, don't listen to those needs of the body because you're supposed to be guided in some spiritual way, which it's so strange to me to think we would disconnect even from a spiritual perspective that that we would disconnect spirit from body because to me it's all one. It, it's what makes us a whole being. And so to call one part of that evil is, is, is I think, really counterintuitive. But potentially this idea of what as well of maybe part of an influence of a culture that says, I'm supposed to shut off that connection. I'm not supposed to listen to those carnal desires of my body. And those desires might be evil. And also I, I can kind of prosperity thinking if I just do the right things, I do the right behaviors, I think the right way, I change my thinking, I can I can be above it. I can be above suffering. I can mm. shut it off. And I feel like I've seen so many people here locally that suffer so desperately because they're not in tuned or connected with their body. Mm. And I'm so glad we're talking about it today because I think as therapists, it's kind of safe it feels safe to stay in the talking and in the intellectualizing. I know like when I watch a show, like, do you remember that show? It was Wipeout where people would literally run through these obstacle courses oh. and in your brain, in your brain, your brain can kind of come up with all sorts of stories. I think I could do that. I think I could do that well. <laughs> but then you like literally go and try to run or you're like, I could run two miles. And then you go and actually try to run two miles and your body's like, mm -mm -mm. and I think even that type of body awareness, I know, like you said, Sarah, one of the most, some of the most valuable learning experiences I had in my education were experiential, where I was learning how powerful an intervention was by experiencing it, but also my body and what I did with it was teaching me things I was mm. totally putting my blinders on towards mm. because they were so scary. And getting more in touch with my body has been uh, enlightening but it's also intimidating. And so, but anyways, that's a whole other thing. But I know we were kind of talking on the course of, of why here in Utah there might be some of that different, that different focus or that lack of uh, valuing the body. I don't know what each of your thoughts are about that after. Yeah, I, th I think that you're making a great point though as to how uncomfortable it is and how <laughs> when you're raised in an environment where the body is even awkward to talk about, body mm -hmm. parts, aren't talked about. Especially, I think, certain certain particular types of body structures. Right. Certain, <laughs> certain forms we're born into. There's more talk about certain body parts and there's less talk depending on... And there's shame mm -hmm. around uh, puberty, right? Mm -hmm. All of these different things that is just shut down the body, control the body. The body gives you urges that are inappropriate and you need to cut off those urges, not not pay attention to them at all, try to suppress them as much as possible. There's so much shame in the body and there's so much of this idea of, like you said, I need to control my thoughts, I need to control my behaviors, and if I can't do that, then I'm I'm hopeless, right? Mm -hmm. I can't do anything. And I think that's prevalent, and when that's prevalent for the therapists, then how are the therapists supposed to get past that mm -hmm. to work with the clients and to help them sink into their body? Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's so much to overcome. Um, I'm thinking about how a lot of my clients talk about growing up LDS, that one huge message is someone else knows better than you. 
Like your parents know better than you. Your bishop knows better than you. Mm. I didn't grow up LDS. I grew up um, in New Jersey, and and still the you know being in um, there's still authoritative structures. You know that like schools that like that there's there's this messaging of there's someone else who knows your your body better than you. Like don't trust. You can't really trust your body. You can't really trust what it's telling you or you don't have the authority, you know, like go to a higher authority, go to a higher authority. Well, in my own experience, the more embodiment work I do, the more I feel, oh, like I have, well, even speaking just to spirituality, like I have direct access to a feeling of meaning in life and spirituality and the divine. I can do that myself. (laughs) I was able to, I have super beautiful, loving memories from when I was like five years old. I could do that my whole life, you know? So if we're just talking religion, it's like, you know, I remember going to church and and being like, oh, if you really want to get closer to God, you go through the priest. And so that messaging, you know, really messed with me for a long. That was one thing I had to work through of like, oh, I get to, I get to experience beauty and love and joy directly through my body. And that's okay. And, you know, the more I get into my body, the more I'm like, oh, I have authority to make my own decisions and I'm my own authority. And I can feel, I don't need other people to make decisions for my own life of my own heart, my own relationships, my own career choices. And that's like a, I think that too is a huge barrier, like a cultural barrier to overcome. Yeah. I'm not innately a bad being that needs to be managed by mm. either my cognitive ability or mm-hmm. somebody else. As you're talking, I'm also thinking it's so hard for clients to acknowledge that they can create a a sense of safety and peace within Mm -hmm. their own body too. You don't have to go to a special place. Nobody has to tell you that you can do that. You can create that within yourself. And that's a huge part of somatics. It's acknowledging, okay, we can get to this place of safety. We can sit in this place of safety. We can figure out exactly what the safety looks like and feels like in the body. And we can access this all by yourself. Mm. This is in you. It's incredibly empowering Mm -hmm. working with somatics and that, that empowerment. And I think another thing that happens in this environment in Utah and likely other places as well, um, but this is where we are. So it's this idea that we love other people and God loves us and other people love us. But one component that I've consistently found missing is self-love, is Mm -hmm. this idea that I can love myself. I'm not super defective and need somebody else to bridge the gap for me between my defectiveness and their non-defectiveness. I am good enough. I am lovable. Mm -hmm. And I think that that creates such a hollowness in the body and such a suppression of the body between all of these things that we're talking about. Yeah, why would you want to live in your body? Why would you how mm-hmm. could you possibly feel comfortable exploring your body? Well, and I, this makes me think of even our discussion about the abusive tactics of treatment centers for teens. It makes me think about when we've talked about abuse in general. It is not a coincidence, I think, that abuse so often and whether it's kind of almost ritualistic abuse and kind of cult-like atmospheres were one-to-one relationship abuse, that it is often getting you to question yourself, getting you to question your experience, Mm -hmm. getting you to question your value, getting you to push past what feels comfortable to you and distrust your body. And I think as in one-to-one abusive relationships, 
in cultures or belief systems or religions. It's a means of power and control to shame us out of connecting with our body. Mm -hmm. That's how I view it. That might be a really skeptical perspective, but I think on one-to-one relationships and culturally that can happen. I feel like on some level, probably each of us has experienced that and that's why we're attuned to it. I can connect with a higher power myself. I don't have to have this go between who controls that Mm. and tells me if I'm right enough to do that. I also don't need a go-between to tell me I'm right in my body, that my attractions, my tendencies, how I feel, what feels good to me, what feels right. I don't need someone else to be a buffer or control that. And there wouldn't be a need to control it so much if the connection to your own body wasn't so powerful. Mm -hmm. I think it speaks to the power of the connection with the body and what you can do with it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And that that's a lot of power for someone else to get to wield how enlightening and freeing it is to actually connect with their body. And like you said, I don't have to have an intermediary Mm. priest or anybody else. Mm -hmm. My direct connection is enough. Yeah. I'm thinking about how with my own embodiment and self-love practices, I've become so aware of how much I'm not authentic with my own body movements from moment to moment and how, you know, the more I'm kind of, I'm like, oh my gosh, I think if I was really being myself on an average day, a walk around the block might involve me like skipping and hugging trees and like waving to people and cartwheels. And I restrict that so much. And to a point too, where there's, you know, a real level of safety, you know, and sorting out, like there's probably a lot of that I actually can do and and be pretty safe. But also like when I do that stuff, if I were to challenge myself, yeah, let's see, can we do that? Can we be real? How authentic can we be? All of the fear comes up to speak to what you're saying, like all of the experiences, all of the Um, social norms, um, all of the shame, all of these ways that keep us conforming is like this internalized oppression that to face with that kind of work also. Oh, definitely. Yeah. I was just talking about this somewhere with this. I think especially in Western cultures, we have this norm that once we're adults or even once we're out of sixth grade, we don't do anything with our bodies that's not some sort of productive something. Mm. <laughs> There's no play anymore. Even if we're we're going to walk, we're exercising, we are doing it in the right clothes and with the right shoes and in the right way to fit into the cultural box. And if we're not doing that, then we're sitting still and we're not being we're not climbing trees. You know, there's so many other cultures and I think that, you know, white people had cultures way back when, mm. before our own colonization issues. I think we had cultures that were a little bit more earth-centric and organic-centric. But there are other cultures that involve a lot of movement, a lot of dance, a lot of singing. And there's so much power in that, especially when you get together with your community and you're mm. all singing and moving and uh, together to celebrate or to grieve. And we're here, sitting still. And even in Utah... I've noticed that people really don't just go lay on a blanket in the grass. I don't see that. When I go to other states or other countries, I see people just, adults, just playing around in the park. But in Utah specifically, for some reason, the lawns are bare. There's nobody out unless they're watching a big movie on a big projector or they're doing something intentional. But if you're not doing an intentional, productive task then you're weird. Well, I, as you were talking, I literally had an experience. That's where I was like looking at you because I I had this bodily experience of 
I lived in Argentina for a couple of years and I had such a culture shock coming home mm. because you were talking about dance, for example, and it's so much more normalized in the schools for them to be really teaching their children dance and passing on those cultural practices. And there's a comfort with them and their bodies that we have this strangeness around mm. here. And even in greeting people, coming up and holding each other's shoulders and kissing on the cheek. And that's the greeting. And that's how you say goodbye. And to me, that was so satisfying. It felt like going home. Mm. And so it was weird coming home to Utah. And I felt kind of that cold wall of we kind of over-sexualize touch mm. and bodies, mm -hmm. between bodies. Mm -hmm. We make fun of each other for dancing or moving. I mean, not everybody, right? Mm. But it's been my experience. Enough that it makes you not want to do it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. that, or we make fun of each other for singing or... Or like in Argentina, there was a lot of just spending time connecting, drinking mate and passing mm -hmm. that around and it being this communal experience. And I'm like, gosh, we just, again, there's a difference there. <laughs> there's a value there that I just resonated so deeply. And coming home was really difficult because it felt like leaving home. And I feel like so much of that was the somatics, the connection with mm -hmm. the body and then with each other's bodies. And then like mm -hmm. you're saying, with the earth, mm -hmm. which is just this big kind of body that we're all appendages of and parts yeah. of and we came from and were returned to mm -hmm. energetically but I don't know that's what I was thinking when you were talking yeah. and it, actually it made me feel happy and then it made me feel sad yeah mm. like there's this grief and there's this craving mm. right that mm -hmm. comes along with it half of my family is Samoan because my uh, my grandpa's whenever I say that people are like you don't look Samoan <laughs> yes uh, I'm not part Samoan so I have to clarify my grandpa's sister married a Samoan man I'm not part Samoan Andrea is very very white I'm blonde <laughs> yes I am translucent white as much as I wish that I was as beautiful as my Samoan cousins because um, they're all gorgeous you're beautiful. but Just stop oh, it. You're beautiful. thank you <laughs> Um, speaking of carnal urges, so growing up, we always had family parties with our Samoan cousins and there was always dancing and singing and playing the ukulele or ukulele. And it was, it was incredible. It was, and I took it for granted. I didn't realize that when our families got too big and when it was just the white cousins that hung out with each other, we would just be sitting and eating and talking. And that was all we'd ever do. And maybe once a year for Thanksgiving, we'd play football, mm. but that's it. Mm. And there's definitely a, a heaviness that I feel around mm. the lack, the loss of it that we need. Yeah. I love how you said, Elizabeth, about coming home. Like it felt like a homecoming, like that connection of having more touch that's not sexualized and like being, having more mm, dance and singing and community. Yeah. I really relate to that. Like it does feel like a homecoming of deeper connection. Yeah. Just that I think that gets lost with, without that. Mm -hmm. I wonder how we can make more of that happen. A funny thought I had or an interesting thought while you were talking is kind of almost this D&D &D culture, Dungeons and Dragons. Mm -hmm. Like I wonder, that's more of this people, you know, being uninhibited, disinhibited, what's mm -hmm. the right word? And, and acting out and dressing up and bringing food and doing feasts and listening to music and, mm -hmm. and doing these role plays. Like I wonder if certain movements like that aren't in some way 
this way we're trying to find a socially acceptable way of doing something that we're missing. And obviously there's other ways that we do that. It's just something that came to mind in this moment. But I wonder how can we help change that? Because obviously for each of us, we've had certain awakenings around the importance of the body and to be whole. But what can we do as therapists? What can we do in our communities to help? That's such an exciting question. I love that question. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if I have an answer, but because <laughs> I'm trying to think, I ask it truly yeah. from a place of like, I mean, I know one to one with clients. I'm I'm trying to facilitate that awareness with mm-hmm. body and integrate it in and in certain ways that feel somatic and other ways that integrate other interventions. And I try to embody it myself and I try to encourage Mm -hmm. it in the people around me. And I think it loops back to what we were talking about towards the beginning of the conversation where we as therapists have to go there ourselves. We Mm -hmm. have to be embodying it. When when we're ourselves, we give other people permission to be themselves. Mm -hmm. Not when we tell other people Mm -hmm. to be themselves. Mm -hmm. (laughs) we We have to go there. We have to be there. I think that Gen Z and Gen A Alpha are really doing a great job mm. of this. Mm. They are just being themselves really unapologetically. And I think it's absolutely incredible. So I think there's hope for the future that we're we're moving in that direction. But if we can figure out how ourselves to go climb a tree mm. and go skip around mm-hmm. while you're on the walk. There's somebody who walks past my house almost every day in the summer and they have like a lollipop. And I'm like, oh, I'm going to go on a walk with a lollipop. Like that's just not the, it's not even pushing the norms that much, mm-hmm. but it's pushing the norms enough that I notice I them. Yeah. yeah. There's like the little things like that where how can I be unapologetically myself mm. for me I, it's, it's stupid stuff, but like I dressed like this when I saw my clients today. And so what I'm wearing right now is just, uh, like a blue tank top and some stretchy pants that have a million colors on them. And I'm not wearing makeup. And in order to be a professional in Utah and a professional person in a women, a woman's body, mm. there is a lot of pressure to show up hyper feminized in mm. order to be taken seriously. Mm-hmm. If you don't, then you're a frump. You don't take care of yourself. And how could you possibly be a professional? And I, as a therapist, have, have heard these things from supervisors before, mm. right? Not just, this is not just my internalized mm-hmm. stuff. Even showing up as I am, I think gives my clients permission to also show up as they are. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, I know for me, similarly, kind of when I was younger, I had, I think, internalized an internalized sense of that I was very limited because I was female. And my parents didn't teach it, but mm. societally, I'm like, I want to be Indiana Jones. And then I look back and there's problematic stuff with him. But <laughs> as a kid, I wanted to adventure. I mm. wanted to be brave. I wanted to do these things. And like I told my mom when I was young, I'm like, I want to be a daddy while I was wearing my dad's Aww. trunks. And for me, I'm I'm married to my husband now. That's my orientation. But for me, it was it's been an interesting thing to embrace femininity, or at least what we call femininity. Because I also have this opposing idea. These are just socially imposed things. There's nothing feminine about wearing makeup. There's nothing feminine about wearing a dress. We just say there is. But so for me, I know, kind of on the opposite end, allowing myself to find what I feel comfortable with, what makes me feel good 
And whether that is not wearing makeup or wearing certain clothing or uh, wearing makeup or doing my hair a certain way, allowing myself to explore that and find Mm -hmm. what's comfortable instead of imposing negative perspectives onto those for me that preexisted has been interesting. And then Mm -hmm. finding where I feel comfortable and then listening when I haven't quite found what's comfortable. Mm. And that's hard when that goes against social expectations of how we're supposed to present ourselves. Like your thigh bags. Oh yeah. People, <laughs> I have had people tell me they love my 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 fanny pack, my leg bag, my thigh bag. And I've had <laughs> even a grandparent who's like, I hate that. I'm glad you're not wearing that anymore. And I'm like, I'm just not wearing it today, but I love it. <laughs> I'm like, that's nice. You feel that way, but I I don't care, (laughs) but to go against certain social norms and go, what, what actually feels right for my body, for my being. And Mm. it can be hard to do with all the noise. Oh my gosh. So much. Yeah. I was actually just thinking about that, how much for me, at least compassion is required for self-love and doing that journey. I'm thinking about how there's this dynamic where, you know, if I'm like, okay, what, what would be really authentic? How can I challenge myself to be authentic? And how that can also take on this critical voice of like, you're not being authentic enough. Or even as a therapist, like <laughs> yeah. you're not embodying enough, like, like, and that can go into that direction. I remember once, you know, really working with trying to deconstruct internalized patriarchy. And I remember that voice became so loud in me of, you shouldn't have to wear a bra. You shouldn't have to wear a bra. And you know, that, that was so loud. I remember going to my bra drawer and just being like, do I want to wear a bra? And just having Mm. these two kind of bully, two bully voices. And one is like, yeah, you have to wear a bra. And it's like, okay. And then the other one that's like, no, don't wear a bra. You're letting down all women everywhere if you wear this bra. (laughs) (laughs) You know, so it's complicated. And I'm just like, oh my gosh, that is neither of those are the voice of my self-love, my compassion, my authenticity. Finding that self behind Mm. those perceptions. I've even had that. And speaking of body awareness, I'm going to move my body because <laughs> I was feeling uncomfortable. Thank but you. you can't move your body because it's loud. <laughs> loud noise. <laughs> I will not edit that out. <laughs> I feel like that would be contrary to what we're talking about. Yeah. <laughs> but I've even had that. This might sound so silly, but maybe you guys can relate. I've had that about ice cream, mm. the flavor of ice cream I was going to eat, where there was this weird idea of, but I like caramel. Why would I get this? Mm. And this weird overthinking, yeah. I think as a therapist, that maybe I know all people, but as therapists, I think we can be prone to that as well of this. I want to be like hyper authentic, but then mm. overthinking it. And then for me, I'm like, well, if I'm overthinking it and I'm having to direct it so much, is it really authentic? And, and if I'm having to talk myself into this ice cream flavor, is that what really, really what I want versus this? And then the, there's my wonderful husband who's like, I like vanilla. It's my favorite. And I'm like, oh, <laughs> I wish, I wish I knew what's my favorite. Does that like, remind me of that conversation that we had a couple of weeks ago about uh, being hyper aware of priming. I was like, do I really want this or was I just primed? Is it just because that was I on saw that oh. shine on the way? <laughs> right, right. <laughs> oh, yeah. And that's, but that's hard, like you're saying. You're trying to get past that noise. I think another thing that is important for us as therapists is as we are ourselves, as we are authentic, as we are embodied. And and I feel like the somatics, the embodiment is a big key to that puzzle of when we're having those internal wars, being able to sink in and say, okay, well, how do my 
boobs feel about wearing a bra. Mm, I love that. <laughs> Maybe they like to be snuggled by this cloth. Maybe yeah. they hate this underwire. <laughs> so I'm going to use that. I've even been doing that a, a little more lately with if something's uncomfortable, throwing it away. Mm. Like listening to my body that way, yeah. like you're saying mm. of if I put it on and it doesn't feel good because sometimes we're hanging on to it because it's two sizes smaller mm-hmm. and we gain some weight or mm. it's, we think we should want to wear that type of thing or it looks a certain way. And mm. I've tried to give myself permission lately, whether it's a new thing, an old thing, if it's uncomfy, throw it away. Throw it away. Mm. And it's been a way I've yeah. tried to listen to my body or if I never feel like I feel like me in a certain outfit or something, it's like, donate it. You know, mm-hmm. get rid of it. Like, I don't need to hold on to this thing that represents something that's not mm. Oh, totally. Me. And I think as as we do that for ourselves, as we sink into ourselves, as we align with ourselves, it becomes so much easier to trust ourselves and ourselves not be in that position of, I need to be hyper in control of my thoughts. I need to be hyper in control of my body all the time. I need someone outside of me to tell me, how to be and how to manage myself. And in turn, we can be that for our clients. So instead of being consistently that person that they need to come to because we're giving them the advice and we're helping them sort through their thoughts, mm-hmm. we're helping them get in tune with them, align mm-hmm. with themselves, get into their own um, sense of trust within themselves, mm-hmm. and then they can truly be free. Mm. But we have to figure out how to truly be free ourselves. And I don't mean that we can't ever lean on people because mm-hmm. we're pack animals, right? We need mm-hmm. each other. Uh, we can't go to people for advice. But that grounded sense of inner knowing mm. is so vital for everyone. So if we can do that for ourselves, then we can help clients do the same. And so, and Sarah, I know we've, we've got to release you eventually, but we've been so happy you've been here. Last thoughts from you. And then we'd love to let everybody know how they can find you, how they can get a hold of you if they're interested. Sure. Well, oh my gosh, I'm just so grateful for this conversation. It just feels so good to talk about. Um, it's not a conversation I hear a lot. And so, yeah, thank you both so much. I still, that the question of how can we do this? How can we make a change is still reverberating in my body. And I'm like, Ooh, I'm going to keep thinking about that. Like that just feels really exciting. Actually speaking to that question next Wednesday, May 31st, um, starting two classes. One is a yoga for self-love and authenticity, um, at 6 PM at the neurodiversity clinic. And at 7 15 PM, we're doing a gender exploration through movement class. So all of the principles that we've talked about, yeah, yeah, we'll be bringing into that. Yeah. And so we have those programs. We have ukulele classes, and then we also do occupational therapy, mental health therapy, and medication management through our neurodiversity clinic. If anyone wants more information, feel free to call or text message 801-432-0015. Thank you so much for coming to speak with us today. I'm glad I got to meet you. Andrea just had so many amazing things to say. So I was excited about today and we're so glad you were able to come. Yes. Thank you so much for joining us. And we have so much more to talk about. So I'm sure we're going to have you back in the future. I'm so happy to have you here in Utah Mm. doing the incredible work that you do. And Thank you, my friend. Thank you so much. (laughs) Thank you so much. And for those of you listening, this was Hystericology Podcast. Thanks for spending an hour with us. Take care of yourselves. Go touch grass. Go touch grass. (laughs) Go put a blanket out on the lawn. Listen to your bodies and 
don't let anybody get in the way of that. And if you need support, there's a couple of great therapists here. You could reach out to Sarah and Andrea. And Elizabeth. And, and myself. She's like, I but I don't me. want you. I guess me too. But thank you. Thank you for listening. Or if you have questions or any ideas, things you'd like us to speak about in the future, or questions you have for Sarah that you'd like us to pass on to her, let us know. Take care. Fare they well. Ha, 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 ha.